0: Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's P A T R E O N.com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, You'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, writer and activist Chloe Valdery, the New Orleans native who originally became known for her vocal and passionate support of Israel has also founded the theory of enchantment a framework of conflict resolution and intrapersonal change rooted in themes found in music and pop culture she's published in the new york times the atlantic and commentary magazine and she joins me now chloe valdery
1: you know i grew up in new orleans which is a hodgepodge of cultures in and of itself i'm very different from the rest of the country very distinct in terms of its Uh, architecture and its uh, artistic contributions to uh, America, you know, New Orleans is famous for a lot of things, but many of which is, one of which is jazz. Um, So New Orleans has always been sort of a a very unique place to grow up in. Uh, But additionally, I also was raised in a unique subset of cultures. I grew up in a Christian family that observed Jewish holidays, including Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which gave me an insider-outsider relationship to both Christianity and Judaism. Um, developed an affinity for Jewish culture as a result uh, went on to do activism against anti-Semitism um, and pro-israel activism in college at the University of New Orleans, where I majored in international studies um so did that and after my college career was over I moved to New York City and worked at the Wall Street journal for a year um, but I was very struck by a lot of the challenges that I had uh, saw or had seen in in college, uh, specifically the challenge of getting people to be able to um, come together to discuss their disagreements uh, in a way that didn't foment uh, hatred and bigotry and rage, but instead that cultivated love and compassion, um, even in the midst of profound disagreement. And that challenge uh, really forced me and pushed me to try to create a framework that would empower people to do that. So I ended up creating the theory of enchantment, um, which is now a full- a program that teaches people how to really develop the capacity for empathy, for compassion, um, to be in a healthy relationship with themselves first, and then with their fellow human beings. And now we're selling it uh, to companies. We're providing it as an anti-racism course to companies to help them implement um, a diverse and inclusion, diversity and inclusion strategy um, in the workplace. So really proud of it. It's rooted heavily in developmental psychology and um, has a lot of fun things, it uses pop culture to teach a lot of the lessons and to deliver a lot of the lessons, so it's very palatable. So that's how I came from New Orleans to working on Theory of Enchantment, which is what I'm doing today. The concept of enchantment is very much rooted in this idea of wonder and um, really being amazed at the wonder of one's own life. It's at the center of what we do. Um, I think that many of us, especially given the challenges of COVID-19, many of us have become far more cynical. Um, and far less attuned to the wonder of life. Um, and theory of enchantment is really all about reawakening human beings to the wonder of their lives, to finding um, enchantment in that which seems mundane, um, starting with their own life and then being able to detect that in other human beings and including in human beings that you know may hold different political philosophies that they disagree with. Um, and this is a foundational pretext that makes the possibility of creating what Dr. King um, called the beloved community more likely. You can't really do that if you are looking at others and certainly looking at yourself with a very cynical disposition um, and with an attitude that is very much, you know, uh, you are X, Y, and Z. And so I will put you in box X, Y, and Z and I and you have nothing to teach me or you must think this or I'm going to assume that you've had this set of experiences and put you over there. That suggests or reflects a lack of a capacity for wonder um, and enchantment uh, that unfortunately is a part of some of our current cultural zeitgeist. But I hope to challenge that and get people to stretch further um, in developing the capacity for wonder and for enchantment by you know, getting this enterprise out and by servicing as many businesses as I can.
0: You mentioned that it can serve as a form of anti-racism training. I wonder if you just look at dialogue, how you talk to friends, how you talk to colleagues, the conversations you observe now versus a year ago versus five years ago. Do you think in America, us 330 million people, have we gotten better or gotten worse about talking about race?
1: Well, quite frankly, I don't know because Twitter and other social media platforms are just a microcosm of American society, and not everything that we see online is necessarily necessarily reflective of where we are as a country. Certainly, not the majority sense of the word. Um, so, I, I'm not sure if I can answer that question. Um, I will say that people, in my experience, some of the people that I've encountered, are less willing to have difficult conversations or challenging conversations about race um, because they are concerned that they will be, like I said earlier, put it in a box, made, have assumptions made about them. Um, so they don't even enter the conversation in the first place. And I think that that's obviously problematic. We want to create a big tent. We want to create a space where as many people as possible feel not only comfortable to have these discussions, but feel like they can contribute their unique talents and their unique skill sets uh, to the conversation, uh, which is a, a worthy conversation and a conversation that requires as many human beings as possible. Since ultimately, I think the goal is, or at least the goal should be reconciliation. Um, and again, created creating the the values that Dr. King articulated um, and the vision that he articulated of the beloved community. Um, so in that sense, um, if you have a environment where people feel uh, really unwelcome or dehumanize in any way, shape, or form. Um, the question becomes, how do we change that environment? How, how do we create a better culture? Um, and this is really the work of diversity and inclusion um, in, its, in its most ideal form. Um, so we have to get back to a, to a place where we're, or move forward to a place, rather, where we're actually creating the conditions for that to succeed.
0: You've talked before about how what you've been mentioning plays into tendencies about cancel culture and about sort of social shaming what, what's your take on on when someone who let let's say has we'll call it an innocent question an innocent thought and presents it and then is canceled or then is is shunned for the next I don't know nine months you know and, and until people sort of forget and the person can crawl out from under a rock I mean what who does that serve do you think what cause does that serve?
1: Well, you know, I think cancel culture is actually a, a symptom of a larger problem, which is the fact that, unfortunately, our identities have been become hyper-commodified um, and the relationships that we have with people have become hyper-transactional. And even the language of cancel culture suggests, you know, like canceling a subscription or canceling a, a product that you ordered. It's very transactional. It's very much uh, materialistic. And again, I think it comes from uh, the fact that, our relationships with each other has turned into a commodity as opposed to a real full-fledged relationship that exists outside the realm of, of the idea that in order to be in a relationship with someone in a healthy way, I have to ask, well, what does this get me? Or, you know, what does this get you as opposed to developing a relationship in a, in a more healthy way? Um, so I think that that is a larger sign of of, of society's ability to, again, reconcile itself to itself, uh, I think it's deteriorating to, to a large extent. Um, I should also add that I think, you know, we talk about this concept in diversity and inclusion spaces all the time of of restorative justice, which is all about um, restoring the victim who was, who was harmed by that of the offender. But it's also in part about restoring the offender as well. Um, and a lot of the tactics that Dr. King practiced during the civil rights movement were rooted in that same idea. You know, he said we're not going to be not, we're not going to be violent, we're going to be nonviolent because and um, what we want to do is we want to show that not only are we being persecuted now we not only are we victims of what the oppressor is doing, the oppressor is also a victim um, of his own making. Um, and so to show that we believe in unadulterated love and compassion, not only for ourselves, but even for those who are persecuting us. We're going to practice nonviolence, and we're not going to uh, respond to harm with harm. We're going to actually try to protect the protect ourselves and protect even those who harm us. Um And that's really a part of the uh, vision for uh, you know, restorative justice and other thinking types of thinking and criminal justice reform. And that's really the opposite vision of, of cancel culture. Again, it, it views relationships and the human condition not in a transactional, commodified way, but in a more healthy and holistic way that's rooted in understanding the sacredness of the human being uh, and in attempting to honor that.
0: You know, a lot of what you say makes so much sense, and, and yet I wonder, is there is there enough space for people? For- you and and like-minded people to to get through particularly online I, i i think a lot of times we have conversations in person or over the phone with someone we know and then then we try to go online and articulate something similar and it just blows up in our face you know it's probably happened to you a lot how do you how do you think you get through online what you're saying to me now as i said seems so cogent and seems so fresh
1: I mean, I don't actually think I've had a lot of experiences with these things uh, blowing up in my face. I don't take uh, my online presence that seriously, which is to say that I, I understand the influence I have and the responsibility that comes with that. But I also know that life on social media is very fleeting. You know, one thing's in the news and then 10 minutes later, something else is in the news. And so I, w- I would just encourage your listeners, if they're active online, to not feel compelled to respond to anything and everything that comes up. I mean, that's not really um, healthy or sustainable, um, nor, is it, nor, nor does it matter to the extent that we think it does. Um, but again, I try to also maintain the attitude with which I'm speaking to you now online as well. And I think it actually is conveyed in a similar way and comes across um, the same way that I'm speaking to you right now.
0: I want to ask a question. And before the conversation, I was thinking to myself, how, how do I ask it? I'm still not quite sure, but I'm picturing you growing up in New Orleans. As, as you said, it's a fascinating city. Mm-hmm. There's there's a, a large black population, a large non-black population, and a, a lot of other things. It's a it's a dense city. You run into people. Mm-hmm. It's, it feels way bigger than it is in a way. So I, I wonder what what you saw in terms of your friends, your dialogues, or your day-to-day life growing up in New Orleans as a young black girl going to college there, uh, and, and then moving out of New Orleans, what, what kind of conversations you had or didn't have regarding race?
1: I mean, I don't know that there were explicit, there weren't explicit conversations about race. This is a very new thing um, in our zeitgeist. Uh, I mean, I you know, I went to school, I there was a lot of uh, history taught in the schools, including African American history, but it was taught as a part of American history, not separate from it. So I, I received that educational experience. Uh, but I went to school um, both. I attended predominantly African American schools and also multicultural schools. I, I've gone to school with many people of different backgrounds, of of different um, you know ethnic makeups, and so. This convers these conversations that we're talking about right now were not happening ten years ago, even I'd say seven years ago, let alone you know twenty years ago when I was living in New Orleans. So, um, and and the way we relate to some of this terminology was totally different as well. Um, when I moved to New York again, similarly, I moved to New York five years ago. These conversations were not happening, at least not in the spaces that I was uh you know not in the circles that I was rolling through. So I I'm, I'm not sure this is a satisfying response. This was never like a this was this was never a a challenge in, in terms of this question of how to how to teach people how to speak about race because of the people I grew up with and was friends with and you know this was never this was never a thing that was a challenge for us. Um, it was never a thing that made itself apparent. Um, and so I think even to a certain extent, race consciousness has grown far more in the past four years than it existed uh, previously. So these are, are in many ways, brand new conversations that are, again, part of the zeitgeist and part of what's happening in the country. So there's, there's a stark dichotomy in that the lens through which we see the world now or the things that we're talking about now, at least in my circles, were not what we were talking about. Uh, back then.
0: You know, it's a satisfying response in the sense that you didn't really have a, a, an explanation or, or a response. That that that's sort of an a interesting response in itself. I and mean, what do you think happened? What's the why for why these conversations may be happening now? Weren't happening before. I, what do you think? What do you think's been trending?
1: Well, obviously, you know, there the calls for police reform and ending police brutality. Has been affecting people of color, has definitely been a catalyst for a lot of the newer conversations that we've been having. And social media amplifies that and makes things go viral. But it also, you know, social media is like a double edged sword. It amplifies it um, and it makes it go viral, but it also has the tendency to um, arrest the number of tools that we have at our disposal to actually uh, have productive conversations about the issues in the first place. So, um, you know, so, so recent events in the country have certainly um, catalyzed this. Um, And and on on top of that, you have the extra piece of COVID-19, which means an increase in depression, an increase in in anxiety, an increase in other um, health issues that aren't related directly to COVID-19, but which are byproducts of not having a sense of connection with other human beings. Um, And this actually increases the uh, likeliness of extremism because extremism um whether it's racism or any other form of extremism breeds in a vacuum um extremism happens when there's great insecurity uh both of a material and spiritual sort um and so i'm not surprised that we're we are seeing more extremist acts happen in our society as a result and of course the conversations that come out of that environment are going to be different from conversations that were happening in an, environment, in an environment that did not suffer from these uh, insecurities that I'm describing now.
0: How do you think the theory of enchantment can be more broadly applied? You've talked about businesses. You've talked about corporations. How can theory of enchantment sort of be made into something that could be brought into a school in an inner city? What adaptation would have to be made? And what's, I, I think the message is probably similar.
1: Well, unfortunately, when it comes to bringing programs into schools, there's a very long cycle. There's a very long sales cycle with schools, even prior to COVID 19. Um, I've had a lot of experience uh, in this regard. And yeah, you know, prior to COVID 19, a typical sales cycle for a school is three years for social emotional learning. um And now, because public schools in particular, but really the entire schooling infrastructure, and the country is fractured, it's, it's almost impossible to, um, deliver new resources to schools, um, in a way that's, uh, sustainable. So the question is, I think for me, I would need to partner with distribution organizations, um, that would do the sort of marketing and, um, uh, the, the specifically, the marketing to the schools, so that I would not have to handle that, and then I would work through this third-party distribution uh, company, and that, and which presumably presumably would already have a relationship with the districts and the schools themselves, and that's how we would be able to deliver the Theory of Enchantment uh, platform to, to in particular high school students. It was my initial desire to deliver it uh, primarily to that cohort, but we kept running into a lot of barriers because of the fractured nature of the public school system, which is, you know, obviously dealing with a whole host of challenges right now because of, you know, prior to COVID, it was dealing with a whole host of challenges, but even now it's, it's, it's way worse.
0: What would you tell a group of ninth graders if you sat down with them and there there were 25, 50 listening, what would be the, the takeaway message that, that they would be thinking to themselves as they left a conversation with you?
1: The theory of enchantment, course, is a pretty intensive training. So I don't, think, uh, I don't think, you know, one conversation would capture it. But what I would hope to impress upon them is the importance of understanding that the human condition is complicated and uh, complex for every single human being. That um, when human beings are engaging in certain actions or in, in any action, when a human being is engaging in any action, There are a whole set of psychological, it's a psychological back end uh, that's informing the behavior. And so what you see a person doing is not, is not merely what the person does. It's not a reflection of what the person is actually uh, feeling is usually much more complex than what meets the eye. Um, It's usually much more complex than the facade, the facades that we project as human beings. Like I could, I could be acting in a very aggressive way and you would think that I'm a very aggressive person. But actually, if you would to peel back the layers, you might discover that, oh, actually, I'm insecure. And I'm overcompensating for that insecurity by putting on a quote, unquote, brave face and acting aggressive. So really giving students and everyone the capacity to seek the depth of things um, is part of the theory of enchantment process. It's part of developing this capacity for wonder. Um, and it's key to developing healthier, more holistic relationships with yourself and with other people um, regardless of their background, regardless of where they come from, regardless of their socioeconomic status, regardless of, you know, all these various factors we put weight on in our society. That would be one of the most important things that I hope they took away from our conversation.
0: I love the idea of sense of wonder. I think that's something that a lot of kids have naturally, and then it's lost as, as a, as a yeah grow older and, and mature, although it's a shame that as you quote mature, <laughs> the, the most crucial thing, I think, which is a sense of wonder, uh, often gets lost or it gets uh, muddied somehow. But but speaking of wonder, I'm, I'm going to take you in another direction, just temporarily, because you know mm-hmm. this is called Talking Beats, and I ask everybody about their favorite music, no matter if they're a musician or not, uh, because it is <laughs> it, the the great unifier, and, and you're obviously from a great music city, You've talked about hip hop a lot. What music do you like? What what's on your playlist right now, Chloe?
1: Um actually right now I'm in a classical music phase. Uh I just I just have a have a playlist that I look up on Spotify that is just a bunch of it's not random, but it's random to me. Uh classical uh usually piano concerts, but you know, it runs the gamut in terms of my interests. I I love everyone from Stevie Wonder and Sade to you know, Bach and um, Chopin. Um, so it's very, there's I, there's no like one category of music that I love, but um, I can tell you that, you know, I was raised on Sade and Sting and the Police. So I, I assume that that has had a great impact on me uh, and uh, on my musical tastes. Um, I love hip hop. I think hip hop is basically the continuation of like, of like Homer, the Bard. Um, I think it's a continuation of this tradition, which has existed in many different cultures, um, including both African culture and and ancient Greek culture, of storytelling and of um, storytelling by way of, of of meter and rhyme and and poetry. Um, and I think that hip hop in America is just a continuation of that tradition that has been practiced, uh, you know, by the world's ancestors so i really respect it uh for for that and for that continuing of that tradition
0: let's just talk a little bit more about that because you've mentioned in the past uh affinities for hip-hop and shakespeare uh, d- make, make some connecting do 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 a deeper dive if you would in, into what you're just talking about connect the bard the great bard and hip-hop right now in america
1: if you, if you look at homer's the odyssey it starts out with a bar telling you that he's going to tell you this great story of adventure and pain and you know uh, rising action, falling action, all of these things. And a lot of hip hop is really just a is just a smaller version of that. So if you listen to the song uh, "The Corner," for example, by Common, um, it's just a it's just a telling of what life is like on the streets. Um, and it's done in a, in a very similar way, in a way that's similar to, or that, for me at least, brings up memories of myself in English class in 10th grade, reading Homer's The Odyssey and, or the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example. Um, the, these traditions of storytelling and uh, recounting uh, narratives is something that I think is pretty universal and it's cool to see it in contemporary form in, in the form of hip hop.
0: What do you think your opening lecture would be about? If if you were going to give an online class, Shakespeare and Hip Hop, what what do you think? What do you think you'd talk about? If you name some specific songs, specific works by Shakespeare that that you see as a launching point, because I just to connect it to music, I, I've always felt that everybody somewhere loves music, even though they may not have grown up with it or they may not come from a family that's expert in music. But whenever I'm playing a concert somewhere in the world, I always give someone a ticket, even a random person outside the hall. And I say, just come listen. They say, well, I've never heard it before. I said, no problem. You don't You don't have to be an expert. All you have to do is come and then listen. It sounds like what you get at a lot is you want people to listen.
1: Mm-hmm. I teach a lot of people not to consume uh, things passively, but actively. So, I mean, I, I can't tell you precisely how I would start such a thing. I would have to give some Thought to it. Uh, definitely would like to include The Corner uh, in, in any presentation uh, that would be like an introductory seminar. Um, probably would also include The Tempest, because uh, that's my favorite play by Shakespeare. Um, but in terms of the, some of the other minute details, I'm afraid I haven't fully fleshed that out. But, you know, sometime in the future, that'd be cool.
0: You've talked about, in reference to what's happening right now in the United States. You said it's a mistake to expect politics to address and to fix, and, and you've emphasized uh, it's a spiritual issue. What, what do you mean by that exactly?
1: Well, yes, I think we're talking about matters that are all about the human condition and how we navigate the human condition given our, our limits and our limitations. Um, I think we're talking about the fundamental question of how do we treat each other in a way that is sacred and in a way that is... Honorable, and that is, you know, that question has political questions, but it starts with um, understanding the sacredness of what it means to be a human being in the first place. And if that that is a, I think that's a spiritual question. Um, and if that isn't grappled with or wrestled with, or is that if that is sort of like, uh, you know, if that is lo- overlooked um, in a lot of our conversations, then it's it'll be like putting a band aid on, you know, a gushing wound. I I think this goes back to what I said earlier about looking into the depth of things and seeking the depth of things. Um, I think politics encourages us sometimes to take things at face value and say, you know, like the example that I gave above, oh, this person is being aggressive. Um, Let's say a person is being aggressive and, uh, you know, just let's just write that person off because this the snapshot in time that I saw this person being aggressive. i totally... Um, you know, judged him or condemned him forever and, and always. Whereas I think having, looking at things through a spiritual lens means looking at the depth of things and seeing that people are not, you know, caricatures or snapshots in time. There are reasons why people engage in the behavior they engage in. Um, and I think it's a spiritual, it's kind of spiritual sensibility uh, that that makes it possible to, to, to see in this way that that isn't to say i think that you have to be affiliated with any organized religion to see things in this way i personally am a woman of faith but i don't think other people have to be uh you know people of faith to develop this or to have this sensibility but it certainly is not a political sensibility
0: how do you think the spiritual awareness the spiritual sensibility could be translated into practical help for all this
1: well, that's what I try to do with Theory of Enchantment, right? Theory of Enchantment is a six-week um, intensive training that uses a lot of, uh, like I said earlier, best practices found in developmental psychology, and um, takes some of our most uh, most beloved uh, narratives and teachings. We, you know, we teach Stoicism, for example. We teach um, we teach James Baldwin. We teach Dr. King, Maya Angelou. Um, We teach these very important skill sets. Uh, we curate them and we put them in a singular, you know, uh, uh, practice, really. And we have our clients engage with the material and wrestle with the material and try to apply the lessons of the material t- to their life. Uh, you know, there's music in it. And I, when I think of when I think of the spirit, I think of music as well. Um, you know, I think spirit comes from or is derived from a Latin term meaning to inspire, which is re- which is related to this concept of wonder um, in and of itself. So they're sort of reinforcing ideas. Um, but yeah, so that's what we do in Theory of Enchantment. We have this in, in entire practice where we put people through a series of, of workshops and um, trainings where they first learn how to deal with themselves as human beings, where they learn what it means to be a human what it means to deal with vulnerability and imperfection and mortality and baggage, both parental and emotional, um, how to make peace with all of that. Um, And then from there, they learn actually how to be in relationship with other human beings now that they know the self Uh, and to develop the capacity for empathy, to develop, develop a capacity for compassion, to learn the concepts uh, or the principles of agape love as Dr. King uh, promoted it in his day. So, um, you know, I think of, you know theory of enchantment as uh, a practical way to apply some of the many of the things that we're talking about right now
0: you've spoken how five six years ago rising anti-semitism in france made you very concerned mm-hmm. it, it it brought up certain feelings that that you even as a non-jew uh it, it stirred something in you what what about right now 2020 america what kind of anti-semitism do you see that that maybe flies under the radar
1: when you're in the fight against anti-Semitism, as I was very explicitly and formally, you know, about, I, I don't know, three years ago, I think it's, it's very, it's, it's everything you think about. It's, it's, you know, it's what you wake up thinking about. It's all that you see. Whereas now, um, you know, I'm aware of certain trends um, that are happening with regard to anti-Semitism, certainly on some campuses that have in in, the, in America that have traditionally been, uh, or lately have been problematic for for a while now. So many things happened, for example, after the Women's March and certain influencers within that organization were actually forced to resign because of their anti-Semitic dispositions. And, you know, I've actually seen um, a reversal of events. And again, looking at it from a big picture, um, which isn't to say that Particular events haven't happened, but from a, I think from a big picture, I've seen a move away from anti-Semitism. Just compared to when I was, uh, you know, actively uh, and formally fighting against it, you know, both in college and a little bit after college, I think I've seen trends reverse um, primarily since then.
0: Take a bit of a a dive into ways of addressing. And in turn, combating racism. You, you wrote on social media about James Baldwin and Ibram Kendi recently. Paint a picture for us of what Baldwin wrote, uh, what what Kendi writes, how you look towards the past, how you look towards Baldwin for guidance or for inspiration.
1: Yes. So we teach two essays by James Baldwin in the Theory of Enchantment Practice. We teach The Fire Next Time. Um, And we also teach an essay called Everybody's Protest Novel. And uh, one of the things I love about James Baldwin is that he was pretty insightful and he was always psychologically minded. He was always someone who was seeking the depth of things. And he famously in The Fire Next Time uh, really condemned the racism coming from both whites and blacks um, and, and really championed this need of human beings to transcend a lot of these um, labels and categories with which we grow so firmly attached. Uh, and I believe you're referring to something I noted on Twitter recently where I pointed out the difference between James Baldwin's um, observations about um, the effect of racism um, in white America and Kendi's observations. and. Um, the distinction was very, uh, very stark. Kendi, Ibram, Dr. Ibram Kendi, who wrote um, How to Be an Anti-Racist, argues at the beginning of the book that, um, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but he says that basically uh, racism made white people more powerful, um, like point blank. And this feeling of superiority makes uh, white people feel more, more powerful or makes not just feel more powerful, but makes them powerful. Whereas Baldwin argued in both The Fire Next Time and in subsequent conversations he had, you know, sort of live with fellow interlocutors that actually um, racism and feelings of supremacy actually come from a deep-seated gap or gaping hole in one's being and a deep-seated feeling of insecurity for which one overcompensates. Um, And he explicitly says that um, if white people actually learn how to love themselves, um, this would not exist because it would not need to exist. Uh, and so he, he makes a connection between racism and white people not loving themselves and a lack of love. And, and that's completely antithetical to some of the anti-racism, um, I guess you would call it, approaches that exist today, uh, which suggests that the problem is not white people uh, not loving themselves, but you know, I'm sure you've heard the term "white fragility" or white people just not listening, or you know, all these very surface-level, uh, superficial analyses, or I would actually say misunderstandings you know, completely of what racism is um, and how it is fundamentally a psychological problem, um, not merely a political problem. Um, and so, yeah, I was just pointing out the very stark difference in the fact that Dr. Ibram Kinney was looking at things on the surface level, whereas James Baldwin actually was able to see the depth of things, was actually able to see beyond the rhetoric and understand exactly and precisely what was going on in the psyches of human beings who are perpetuating supremacist um, ideologies. And this reflects a lot of the, a lot of what we know based upon developmental psychology. For example, if you study the writings of Abraham Maslow, he talked all the time about how Deficiencies, internal deficiencies, lead to um, these outward expressions of aggression, and can sometimes, you know, tip over into what we know as extremism, and in this very particular form of extremism, um, into racism.
0: You mentioned white fragility, among other terms. It's a, a sort of a, a catch-all that that may not go beyond the surface. What what is white? fragility and and how how is a term misused or used uh, as a, as a way of explaining away someone's uh, internal problems?
1: So white fragility is a term coined by Robin DiAngelo, uh, who wrote a book called white fragility. And the premise of this book is that um, basically that all white people are racist um, by virtue of being white, which is of course a circular non-argument number one. And, but more specifically, Number two, this idea is that if you are white and you object to her um, caricaturing of you, then it just proves that you're fragile, um, and it just proves that you can't handle the vitriol and abusive rhetoric that she's hurling at you, um, and it's proof of your racism. So it's a circular argument. It's like a it's a double bind. Um, it it dehumanizes white people. It tokenizes black people. Um, it's really um, fundamentally unhealthy, uh, a very unhealthy um, approach to racism that not only does not um, does not correct racism, it actually ends up perpetuating more bias. Because again, if you understand that racism is a product of a blend of insecurity, self contempt, and overcompensation for that self contempt, then it makes no sense to create the conditions where you make people insecure, where you make people feel insecure. Um, and white fragility in the workshops that I'm familiar with that Robin D'Angelo runs um, does exactly that. Um, and so it's not a recipe for ending racism. It's actually a recipe for uh, perpetuating it. At, at best, it's a recipe for creating a very um, cold and hostile workplace. At worst, it's a recipe for actually perpetuating racism because as the great Maya Angelou once said, if you tell someone over and over again, they are nothing, they are less than nothing, they count for nothing, and I'm going to insert brackets here, which is essentially what Robin D'Angelo uh, tells white people, um, then, then not only will people eventually say to you, oh, do you think I am nothing, I will show you what nothing is. And then they will become even worse than how you have accused them of being, and the moral of that story is that a person cannot and will not develop character unless they are valued. So by definition, if you're trying to create a society of people with character who treat each other fairly and equally, and you try to do that by dehumanizing those people, they will develop into the exact opposite. So that's why. P- I Chloe
0: Valerie, that's quite a summation. The way the way you put it with such elegance and ease, I I, I hope a lot of people <laughs> will will listen to that and <laughs> and, and and hear it. Uh, that there's certain clarity. But then again, I am I'm, I'm talking to you, and I feel it's so. It's so wonderful just to be able to talk to someone. Of course, I'd prefer if we could be in person, maybe after the pandemic. But you know, to to talk sure. to someone and and actually just ask ask questions and and just have an open mind. I think that's that's sort of uh mm-hmm. again it goes back to music. It goes back to when when people say to me, "Oh, you're in classical music, so you must hate everything else." I said, what? Well, mean, "What? What? What? What planet are you on that that just because I've been a cellist my whole life, I can't go home and put on?" glenn miller or, or, or put yeah. on anything i mean this these and these boxes that you mentioned before uh are, are are damaging they're they're damaging and they're also i think a way of of not actually talking about the issue if you just box people away you said that's it they're in that box let me go wash mm-hmm. my hands move on to the next person
1: yeah yeah no i, I definitely agree with that.
0: um chloe valder you you're looking with me at fall 2020, coming down the pike, what are you pessimistic about? What are you optimistic about short-term, long-term? What keeps you up at night?
1: I don't know that I'm pessimistic about anything. What keeps me up at night is all of my ideas on how to build my business (laughs) and (laughs) uh, really get the theory of enchantment out there as fast and as sustainably and to as many people as possible, which is, I think, a a noble endeavor and a really fun project to work on. So I actually am pretty optimistic, just because I get the incredible opportunity to really um, work on something I I care about.
0: You seem like a pretty optimistic person. What what not not just because because you just said that, but sort of your your, your whole yeah. demeanor, everything you've been building, is is based on love. It's based on enchantment. It's based on compassion. Dialogue. I really admire the way you try to use those principles uh, to talk about issues that are not always so pleasant. And, and, and I, mm-hmm. I, think there's, I think there's a real space for it. I think people are crying out for something more than the Twitterverse, crying out for, for conversations like this that aren't made for 30-second soundbite, gotcha moments. They want to hear something substantive. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I also think that speaks to the recent proliferation of podcasts everywhere. Uh, it seems that every day there's a new podcast that comes out that actually reflects our our society's deep desire for long form content and for you know deep discussions.
0: You have a couple podcasts, don't you?
1: I guess technically, yeah. Uh, what
0: what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you you do a lot? It's hard to keep track of, but but I think you at least one. What 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 is it? What are they?
1: Yeah. I have, well, I have two podcasts. I have the Theory of Enchantment podcast, which is a bit on hiatus, but the we, we have pre-existing episodes that folks can listen to if they go on to, you know, Apple, they can check out and subscribe to the Theory of Enchantment podcast. I also have another podcast with Jamie Kilstein um, that I re- we record, you know, every week. It's called So Much Things to Say. It's really, really fun and um, really cool podcast about a lot of the things that we're talking about, how to... Uh, bring in a holistic lifestyle um, to your own life, especially right now with COVID-19, um, how to talk about different difficult political issues in a way that's rooted in a lot of the principles and frameworks we've been talking about that are healthy um, and that serve the spirit, if you will. So, so much things to say is definitely something to to subscribe to, to be on the lookout for and to just, you know, tune in every week or whenever you can.
0: We'll do that. And Chloe Valdry, I want to thank you for your optimism not fake optimism real optimism (laughs) and we 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 need more of that And, and your insights perspectives i hope there's another time to come
1: likewise thank you daniel
0: you've been listening to talking beats with daniel Alchuk. i hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on apple spotify or anywhere you get your podcasts the original theme music for this program is by ronald markham the content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lelchuk. See you next time.